0: Congregation, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 25? Matthew 25. And we'll begin reading at verse 31 until 46, the end of the chapter. And that will also be our text for this evening. Matthew 25, 31. You can find that on page 1056 in your Pew Bibles. Matthew 25:31 And this is Jesus speaking our Lord When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to it. The title for our message this evening is A Key to Patience and Opposition. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, these words of our Lord come to us at the very end of what has sometimes been called the Olivet Discourse, one of the great collections of Jesus' teachings and sermons in Matthew. And this discourse began in Matthew 24, when the disciples come to Jesus near the end of his ministry, and they ask him, their teacher, two basic in Matthew 24, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of Christ's coming at the end of the age? And so throughout this discourse, Jesus has been answering these two basic questions. But, this is where we're going to focus tonight. He's also been saying a lot more than just answering those two questions. In the process of explaining and answering, Jesus has revealed Two things. First, what the future of the church will look like as it awaits Jesus Christ's return and what Jesus Christ expects his people to do as they wait. It reveals what the future of the church will look like. And what he says, and you can read from Matthew 24 to our text, it doesn't look good. What he says is that until the end of the age, the church will be persecuted. The enemies of God's people will increase. He says there will be tribulation. As he tells them these things that we might not like to hear, and that certainly the disciples didn't want to hear, he also adds how he expects the church to live through that suffering. They are to await his return. They are to look out for him. They are to keep their lamps alight. He gives many different parables and illustrations to put forth the point. They are to be patient. The church of Jesus Christ, as it awaits its Lord to return from heaven, is to be patient, even as they're opposed. This is his expectation. Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, and he speaks these words to us now. We are called. To be patient. Now would you find this an encouraging message? Things are going to be difficult. Things are going to be hard. But be patient. Is that encouraging? Is that a good news message? No, it's not. It's discouraging. Fear inducing. We are called to be patient. How on earth is this possible? We're called to wait. How can that be? Well, Jesus seems to think so as well because then at the very end of his sermon, at the very end of his message, he gives us our passage right now as he wraps up his discourse with its predictions, bad predictions, and its commands, which are heavy and difficult. He angles towards comfort. And he gives in our passage a wonderful promise to the people of God, to us now in Beecher, Illinois. Jesus will return in judgment for his people. The waiting, the struggling, the mocking, the pain, the persecutions that we even now begin to face, much worse out there in the world in the international church, in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, but even now begin to face, as our culture is less and less familiar with the Christian faith, we can be patient because our king is returning because the shepherd king will exalt his flock. And so our Lord's words encourage us this evening in our present struggle to be his people, to be a patient people by showing us two things about our coming shepherd king and judge. First, see his glory. And second, see his judgment. So first, see his glory. Jesus begins these words of our passage by describing himself on that day of final judgment and the way he does this is by beginning his words with his favorite title for himself you can see this in verse 31 son of man this is jesus's favorite title for himself in all the gospels he refers himself to he uses this title to refer to himself almost exclusively this is jesus's title for himself so by using this title Jesus speaking about his future judgment is placing himself in the context of ancient prophecy all the way back in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, an Old Testament prophet who spoke so long ago before Christ, hundreds of years before, in a difficult situation for Israel when they were oppressed by the Babylonians, the prophet Daniel saw a vision from God. And in this vision, in Daniel chapter 7, he saw four Fearsome beasts. And it's revealed in this prophecy that these four beasts, they represent four kings who are to arise after um, his time. And they would arise, and they would be horrible, and they would persecute, and they would oppress the people of God. But the fourth, he was the worst. He would oppress like none of the other kings before him. His kingdom was so much worse. He, Daniel even says that he had a little horn that made war with the saints and prevailed over them. That there would arise a kingdom that would seem to win over God's kingdom. So while Daniel is difficult to interpret, what's clear is that this beast is the enemy of God's people. He represents all that oppresses, all that opposes, all that persecutes the people of God. And so in this prophecy of the fourth kingdom, Daniel sees God, who he calls the Ancient of Days, receive a throne. God, called the Ancient of Days, takes a seat in his glorious court to judge this beast. We're told that in the prophecy that this fourth beast is killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. The Lord will judge and avenge his people, rescuing them from their oppressors. But then Daniel sees this prophecy in another way. Right afterwards, there's another angle to this vision. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven came one, like a son of man, like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him, son of man, was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Can you hear the Lord's prayer in that? The doxology at the end, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Jesus taught his disciples this. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And so the Son of Man is the end times king, the glorious and mighty ruler who rules over all. When God has saved his people. He's David's better son. He's heir of the world with Abraham. All peoples, nations, and languages, the text says, bow down to him as their rightful ruler. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus has been preaching up and down Galilee until this point. This is the son of man. And Daniel 7 is very clear. He is a glorious son of man. Jesus says this about himself. Jesus will take his throne. And when he does take his, what our text in Matthew calls, a glorious throne, then he will be openly recognized and acknowledged by a whole court of all nations, all languages, all peoples. Our text even says all the angels are there. All the angels, which Revelation 4 says, sing to the man upon the throne, holy, holy. Holy, holy, this Jesus Christ will be openly recognized. And what this means for us now, it's comfort for us now, because this is the Jesus Christ we're called to be patient for. This is the Jesus Christ who isn't weak, isn't powerless, who's on standby waiting for whatever might happen. This is Jesus Christ, king of history. This is Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who will come on the last day for his people, for his bride as a jealous husband, Jesus Christ. Is this your Jesus Christ? The Jesus Christ who will return for his people, the shepherd coming for his flock, the king coming for his subjects, Jesus Christ. This is the Christ you're called to be patient for, the Christ you're called to be a witness to and to seek to win souls to. He is glorious. Not one to be ashamed of. Not one to hide off in a bushel underneath a bed. But Jesus Christ to be shown as the light of the world. By us, his lights in the world. But there's an irony in Jesus saying this at this point in Matthew as well. As Jesus uses this title for himself, there's an irony. See, as Jesus is saying this, plans are already being set in place. For this Jesus Christ to be put to death. Look at the verses right after a passage in chapter 26. Jesus prophesies that the Son of Man, he uses that title, Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And the chief priests and the elders of the people plot together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. This Jesus Christ soon to die this Jesus Christ who so far in Matthew if you've read it from cover to cover you'll see this Jesus Christ who's been rejected who's been mocked he's the one who says these things the irony is this the image of the son of man Jesus is speaking of doesn't look like the Jesus Christ we see in our gospel so far it doesn't look like him far from all nations languages and people serving him acknowledging him He's been rejected by his own. And when this Jesus Christ King, when we see him in Matthew stand with a court around him, it's those condemning him. The high priests, the Pharisees. This Jesus Christ? Is this the Jesus Christ? And in fact, if anything, we see Jesus in the Gospels described how his church looks like at present. Rejected. Ridiculed. Mocked. Jesus looks like his church as it will await his return, awaiting the glory to be revealed, but not seen at present. And in theology, we call this the state of Christ's humiliation. He had to go through this for you and I. Jesus came the first time without glory and meekness and humility for the salvation of you and I, his people. He died. He was mocked. He was scorned on the cross for salvation's sake. As a son, he learned obedience through pain and opposition. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. His kingdom, his cause, his message, our message. For it, he suffered. And so in this, Jesus having no glory for our salvation pay for our sins. and this we also see a model of what the Christian life actually does in fact look like. Patience. Patience while bearing the cross. Patience while suffering reproach. Isaiah 53 described the Messiah's task this way. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He walked as a pilgrim, seeking a better city like we do, a heavenly one. He awaited a glory to be received, as we await a glory to be received. Patience. And yet this was Jesus' first coming. In his first coming, Christ accomplished salvation. He began to apply it. But now Jesus, in our passage, is describing a new phase. Out from his humiliation comes glory. Comes exaltation. His second coming. When salvation is fully applied. When all is said and done, when the king comes for his people, the son of man will return. And where before he came with no glory, literally stripped of all his clothes to hang naked on the cross in that day coming soon, Christ will be clothed with glory indescribable. No longer alone, no longer cut off from the land of the living, he will come, as our text says, with all the angels, the angels of revelation, the angels that currently attend to him, sing to him, and give him praise that Jesus Christ. That's the one you're patient for. That Jesus Christ, the Christ of power, glory for you beloved people of God. Can you be patient for this Jesus Christ? Not raising, not raising our voices in anger when we're mocked, when we're misunderstood, when we're maligned as Christians. The world is full of sinners. They rejected our Lord Jesus Christ. he will certainly reject us. This shouldn't be a surprise, says Peter. But will we be patient? Because Jesus Christ will have all glory. It doesn't depend on us. His victory doesn't depend on us. Here's a simple fact of the matter. People of God, Jesus Christ will win. Nothing you or I can do, nothing the world can do can stop that fact. Jesus Christ will win. Notice in our text, doesn't he speak with certainty? He doesn't give conditions. He doesn't say if you build your churches, you build your schools, you build your institutions, you build your whatever, fill in the blank, then Jesus Christ will come. Then he'll be victorious. No, he says when he does, he will. That's comfort for us. He will win in the end. And so we can't slip into a defeatist mindset as though somehow hinges on us a certain way or the world going a certain direction Jesus Christ will win he is the son of man the ancient of days will give him his throne and when Christ wins his victory will be our victory when the son of man comes as the shepherd he will give his flock victory exalting them which we see in our second point our second point, see his, see his judgment. Now we turn our attention to the court assembled before Christ as described in our passage. Before Christ on the last day. This court. All texts say, our text says, all the nations will be gathered before him. And so all people that have ever existed, all people who have died, people from far off, people near, they will appear before Jesus. However, the king... Separates the people into two, placing each group on one of his hands. On the right hand, there are the sheep, and on the left hand, there are the goats. The image of sheep, we should be familiar with this from the rest of the Bible, it refers to the people of God. And as we read further in the passage, that becomes quite clear. Jesus says to the sheep, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. In other words, the sheep treated Christ well. They honored him. They respected him. They saw him, and acknowledged him. But the sheep are surprised to hear this fact because they've never seen the glorious king in front of them like how he describes himself. Yet Jesus says that they truly did these things for him. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And so, by brothers, we need to understand that he's speaking of Christians. He's speaking of the other sheep. And so we have a principle principle is this the king identifies with his subjects or the shepherd identifies with his sheep how someone treats the sheep is taken personally by the shepherd on the other hand of the king there are the goats the image of goats doesn't have a common sense in the bible but as we read the passage we see exactly what kind of people these are The king tells the people, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Notice the goats aren't being condemned necessarily for what they have done. No, far more than that. These aren't just sins of commission. These are sins of omission, things they haven't done. They haven't blessed the king. They haven't submitted to the shepherd. And so evidently, these aren't Christians. Again, these goats, like the sheep, they don't know what the king is talking about. They've never seen any king like this. And surely you would think that if they saw a king like this in need, then they would take advantage of that and help this king along, but they don't know. The king says in Matthew twenty-five forty-five, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, You do not do it to me, and the least of these are to be taken as the sheep on the king's right hand. In other words, these people aren't just people who never believed in Christ, but people who saw Christians in need, saw the brothers and sisters of the king, and they refused to help him, help them. They are the people Jesus has warned his disciples about all throughout his discourse. They chose to ignore that the sheep were sons, and daughters of the king, and they persecuted them. The goats are the sheep are the church's persecutors. The principle is the same. The king identifies with his subjects. The shepherd identifies with his sheep. How someone treats the sheep matters and is taken personally by the shepherd. To the sheep, the king says, Come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The king exalts his humble flock. As he has walked the road of patience himself and persecution, his flock has. They've walked behind their shepherd. they followed in his footsteps. they followed in the road of the cross. And they've borne it. And they've done well. And they will be exalted. He says, his kingdom is their kingdom. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. His kingdom, his glory that we just heard about is their glory. Everything we just heard about Jesus' glory, beloved, that is going to be yours on the last day. Do you believe him? Everything that the Son of Man inherits from his Father, the Ancient of Days, that's given to us. Jesus' victory, irrefutable, certain, without a doubt, will be our victory. Do you believe this? Will you be patient in this life, knowing this fact? That you stand to inherit a kingdom prepared for you before the foundations of the world. In Jesus Christ. This means two things for the sheep, for us. First, it means that the chefs, that in that day the suffering of the sheep are gone. Remember again how Jesus describes the sheep. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they aren't clothed. This isn't just because lack. This isn't because of bad luck, this or misfortune. This is abuse that they suffer. This is what the goats did to them. But notice what they receive: eternal life. And eternal life doesn't just simply mean life that doesn't end, merely. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't just mean that. It's a quality of life. Life to its fullness. Life that Adam would have received if he was obedient in the garden with God. Sweet and close communion with the Lord. The fullness of salvation. Their abuse is removed. What they've suffered is removed. All the scars, all the pains, that is removed. Supernatural life is given to them, a glorious life. Pain, suffering, embarrassment, those things are past things at this point. Bruises from the path of the cross, those are heals. Life is enjoyed in abundance. Even if it can't be enjoyed now, it will be then. Immortality will swallow up mortality, and eternity will be the home of the saints. The second thing this means for the sheep has to do with their innocence. Something that has always fascinated me about this passage is just how stark the contrast is between the sheep and the goats. Did you notice that as you read through it? Obviously, goats and sheep are entirely different animals, but look at their work described in this passage. Nothing good is ascribed at all to the goats. Nothing good. According to the king on the throne, they haven't done anything good. Yet you compare that to the sheep, Nothing bad is listed to them. Did you notice that? To the goats, everything bad. But to the sheep, everything good. The sheep are depicted as being perfect. You want to imagine it like this. They're depicted as being perfectly white, perfectly fluffy, perfectly without flaw. They're ideal sheep. Is that us? Well, we could be discouraged and say, well, that's not me. Brother, you don't know me. I have sins. We're all sinners, aren't we? Are we the sheep? According to Jesus Christ, we are the sheep. In His eyes, we are the sheep. What do we believe about justification? That we are made as white as snow, that we are washed as white as wool. The sheep in our passage is depicted as being perfect, they have been perfectly washed. You might not feel it now. You might struggle in your conscience now with things done in the past. People who oppose you might even pick, poke fun at you for them. Past sins, past guilt, flecks of black in an otherwise white fleece made white in Christ. But that won't stand That The sheep are declared to be perfect by the king. Is it because they lived perfectly? Is it because we lived perfectly? Absolutely not. Justification is enjoyed and experienced, experienced fully. When we look at ourselves on that day, what are we going to see? We're going to see ourselves just as Christ sees us, perfectly washed, perfectly innocent. And all the good works that we've done will be shown to be that they're the works of God. And he'll crown them. The sheep of God are shown to be entirely innocent, and their cause will be shown to be the very cause of the Son of God. All that they sacrifice, all the sin they overcame, with the shepherd's grace, will be crowned. Their whole walk, commanded by Christ, their patience, will be shown to be the very works of God. This is what the shepherd will do for us, flock of God. One thing as we close that we need to touch on, however, we'd be wrong if we didn't touch on, is the role vengeance plays in this passage. Part of the blessing of this passage, part of the gospel in this passage, is this fact. Those who oppress the church will face hell. Eternal fire. Did you notice that at the end of this chapter, verse 46? And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's eternal in both cases. And that's presented as a good thing for the people of God to hear. God declares through the rest of Scripture, He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from His way and live. That's from Ezekiel 33. But He declares with equal force that He hates sin and even sinners that he will punish transgression, especially when committed against his people, because the Lord is a jealous God. And as we learn from here, the king identifies with his subjects. He takes personally what his church faces. This is gospel for us, that our enemies actually are punished for their sins. Now, there's a bad way to take this, and there's a way to abuse it. This is the first way you can abuse it. You can say, ah, I know so-and-so. They're going to really get it in the last day. And that's not how we take this. We recognize that once we are children of God, we now have God's enemies as our enemies. And this is the work of the king. That he will do right. Not that so-and-so who's harmed me in particular is going to face punishment but that the king of the whole earth will do right. And there's a second way that we can abuse this. And it's in fact the opposite of the way it needs to be heard. Second way we can abuse this is by hearing in this, great, I don't have to tell anyone the gospel because they're going to get punished anyway. Those who oppress and persecute the church, well, they've lost their chance because they've said no to Jesus and they've made fun of the faith, the religion. We see them on the news, so on and so forth. no. This is, an input, this is an encouragement and a reason to tell the gospel. Even if it means more insults. Even if it means more opposition. Because there are people out there who have rejected Christ. And they will face eternal judgment. And yes, it will be even because of the love of the shepherd for his flock. But, remember, we're called to be patient. Patience involves loving our neighbor. And we are to pray for our enemies, even those who persecute us. That's explicitly what Jesus says in Matthew 5. To pray for our persecutors. Our Lord will judge those who oppress His church. But before we knew the Lord, wasn't that also in some sense us? Rejecting the king? This is what patient people do. They pray for their enemies. As our Lord did, even on the cross. This is what patient people do. They rest in this hope the King will come with all his angels, the Son of Man. And he will do right. He will exalt his flock. And so in, conclu- in closing, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the a Discourse, Jesus has given a lot of Bad news to his church. And as we look around us, we have seen that come to pass. The church is in so many places persecuted, so many ways pushed back on. And even in our own country, we do see it now, even with our neighbors. But this command to be patient, it can be done. Because we have the key to patience. This promise, Jesus Christ will come. Your son of man. This Jesus Christ, is he your Jesus Christ? the powerful one, the righteous one, the glorious one, coming for you, to glorify you, to exalt you, to take away all the pains and sufferings you've had because you walked with him down the path of the cross. Beloved, Christ will return and he will be glorious. Christ will return and the shepherd king will exalt his flock. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Gracious gracious shepherd, king, we come to you. You've shown us, O Lord, the glory that you will have on the last day when you come for your people. May we treasure this, and Lord, you have shown us what you will do for us in that day. May this promise be precious to us. And so, Lord, as we go out into this new week, we go, Lord, with the command to be patient. But, Lord, we go with the grace to be able to be so. Because of Jesus Christ. Because of what he's done for us. With freedom to tell the gospel. Knowing that whatever might happen to us, no matter how we might be pushed it back against, we will be exalted. So... Lord, may Christ come quickly so that we may inherit this kingdom prepared for us and so that we may enjoy eternal life in communion with you. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in your name.